the inevitability of suffering. 1 Peter 3.17. We'll come back to that verse again. For it is better if the will of God be so. Think about the profound implications of that. Because Peter has just said to us, this is the will of God, or this may be the will of God. And here's what he connects to that, that ye suffer. Does God will that his children would suffer? That's a difficult question to deal with, isn't it? Many a people have kind of fallen off the wagon of their faith because of trying to struggle with that question. Did God will this awful thing to happen to me? And why would he do that? There's, we, we could unpack that for a very long time, but we're going to kind of narrow our focus just a little bit on it. First is the Christian is called to live constantly by a higher ethical standard. Do you agree to, do you agree to that? The Christian ought to live to a higher ethical standard than the culture around them, generally speaking. It is the exact moment when we don't feel the desire to respond with a gracious testimony. Anyone? Ever been there? It's in that moment when we feel like saying that hateful, obnoxious, rude thing, that it is most important in our testimony of our hope in Christ, that it is that it's most important to do so, to share the testimony of the gospel of grace in our life with the people when we really would want to just fight back and say, well, I know what your end's going to be. That's probably not the way to go, right? Yeah. Tell them about Christ. Always come back to there. So the second part is, if it is better to suffer, what does that mean God wills the Christian to suffering? Here's a couple things. Peter affirms that it is not God's central purpose to make us suffer. So go back to verse 14. But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Another way that I could, I could read that is, but even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Think about that. Even in your suffering, God's central purpose and will for your life is to be what? Blessed. Well, hey, but if I'm suffering, how can I possibly be blessed? How do we, how do we deal with that? God's central purpose and will for the Christian is to do what is right. You, you, would you agree to that statement? That God's central purpose for me, for Seth, for everybody in the room, is first and foremost for us to do what is right or to live righteously. And we've been going over this week after week that love, as described in the Bible, is living righteously towards one another. How God would, would respond to each and every one of us is how we should respond and interact with each other. So, if God's central purpose and will for the Christian is to do what is right, oftentimes living righteously will result in suffering at the hands of evil people. So, oftentimes living righteously will result in the suffering at the hands of evil people. And then, so why is it better to suffer? From an eternal perspective... If it's God's will that we have to suffer, think about this, it is better to suffer now in this life as doers of good at the hands of evil men than one day on the day of visitation or the day of judgment when these same evildoers shall receive their just punishment from the eternal judge of all men. You see where the blessing is? You can experience suffering at the hands of evil people because you're doing righteous things in this life, or you can live... The same way, you can live as an evildoer, not as the child of God, and you will maybe not experience as much suffering in this life, but when the eternal judge of all the ages comes and executes his judgment on us, that is the blessing that we avoid that. Do you see how Peter's connecting the eternal and the temporal together and showing us that there is a better way? You're thinking, I think it was Randy Alcorn who said, we're not living for the dot, we're living for the line. Because a dot is just a little blip in time, whereas a line is a thing that continues theoretically forever. And that's the difference between this life and eternity. So then the last part here is, those who share in Christ's suffering, 
because of their faith in him, will not be defeated, but will also share in Christ's victory. So bringing it all together, and these are verses 18 through 22. 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17 address the Christian's response to suffering evil for doing good. But verse 18 through 22 take it beyond just theory and provide two powerful examples for us to emulate. So let me read them. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of the good conscience toward God, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Now there's some big theological arguments to unpack out of these verses. I'll hang around afterwards if you want to talk about them. But here's the big picture. Here's how what Peter just wrote in verses 13 through 17 apply to verse 18 through verse 22. And the first example he gives us is who? Jesus. Jesus suffered for all sin once and for all. He's the captain of our salvation, made perfect through our suffering. That's what Hebrews 2 and verse 10 tells us. He asked that the cup be removed. Remember that? If there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. There's the humanity of Jesus. But he said what? He conceded to the will of God. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. To live out God's plan righteously, which is the cross. We saw that in Matthew 26, 39. Even though this did result in suffering, is that the way it ended? Absolutely not. It ended with glorious victory, which we read about in Romans 8, verse 18, where he talks about a great glory that is going to be revealed unto us. It's the same glory that Jesus experienced as he resurrected from the grave. You and I are now able to partner in that same ministry because of Jesus. And you might say, well, that's great and everything, but there's one difference between me and Jesus, and that's what? Surely we know. He's God, right? Okay, he's God robed in flesh. We have his power available to us through the Holy Spirit working in us. But maybe here's another example that Peter immediately just weaves this whole tapestry together. Noah, Genesis 6 through 9. I'm not going to read all three chapters. If you'd like to familiarize yourself with the story, that's where it is. But within a pagan culture, now again, did you, do you read the story of Noah and see anybody beating Noah? Anybody bringing a sword to Noah? Anybody attacking Noah or putting him in prison for what he's doing? No, they're not. But what are they doing? They're mocking him. They're making fun of him. He has no social status. He's seen as a buffoon. He's seen as a crazy, crazy guy walking on the street who talks to himself. That's, what, that's how they view Noah. He has no social status. They're not overtly trying to martyr him, kill him, take his life away from him, steal his family, none of that stuff. They're just making a mockery of him. Do you see how that would correlate to the first century Christians that Peter's talking to? No one's outright yet trying to kill him. That's coming. But they're, they're losing their status, they're being mocked, they're being made fun of because their system of belief doesn't fit in with the culture around them. I think we can, we can um, relate to that. So he's maligned and mocked on every side. Noah remained faithful to the task that God gave him. Did he ever stop? He continually remained faithful to building that ark that God told him to build. No one understood what he was doing. And think about this, not one person outside of his family partnered with him. Sometimes I think about the ministry of the prophet Jeremiah, where he prophesied for, what, 40 years or something like that? And not one person that he was prophesying to turned. Not one person. You want to talk about faithfully serving in ministry and not seeing any fruit come? I would get very discouraged if I was planning a church for 40 years 
and not one single person walked in the door. People might start to look at me, even in my own Christian faith, and say, that guy doesn't know what he's doing, right? But sometimes that's the way that God operates, isn't it? Noah built an ark, and there was all those people that were mocking and maligning him and his family. Could they have joined in and partnered with him and helped him build the ark? Would they have received the blessing? Sure, but no one did it. And that might be your case. You might influence all these people around you and not see one person turn. But if you remain faithful, then the blessing is waiting for us. Noah's faith would ultimately save himself and his family from destruction. And Noah chose not to fight or flee. See, again, Noah didn't pick up the sword and start running everybody off, did he? We don't see him yelling back and saying harsh words or you know, getting caught up in all kinds of ridiculous arguments with people. What did he do? He just kept building the ark. That's what he did. He didn't fight. He didn't flee the hostile threats around him. Rather, I love what Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7 says, because he's in the hall of faith, that chapter where we cycle back and read about David and Abel and all these different characters in scripture. And Noah's one of them. And he says, rather, he condemned the world, shunned it, put it away and became an heir of righteousness, which is by what? Faith. I think that's a pretty powerful statement, don't you? And I hope that that can be the testimony of our life when we get to the end of it, that we put the world away. Even if we suffered, whatever it was, and we were heirs of righteousness, and we did it by one thing, and that's what? Faith. Is that helpful? Suffering, doing good things, mean people, all that stuff. Here's why I think this is going to be extremely helpful for families. And do you think your kids are going to have a more difficult Christian um, experience than you had? I would argue probably. Especially as they're coming up through school and they've got to deal with people that are overtly rude and obnoxious and are looking to hurt them, maybe not physically, but with words because of their Christian faith. And we got to instill to them, here's how the Christian responds. Not just adults, not even just teenagers, but here's how children respond. When somebody is asking you in a certain way, shape, or form about the hope that's in you, you don't fight, you don't run away. What do you do? You live out faithfully. That's the answer. Fight, flight, or faith. I think that the Christian's responsibility is faith.